1: Sergio Perez wins in Jeddah in another dominant Red Bull Racing 1-2 after Max Verstappen recovers from 15th to 2nd. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato and this is round two, the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. Hopes that Red Bull Racing's advantage might be curtailed at the high speed Jeddah circuit were quickly dashed, with the RB19's advantage, if anything, looking even larger than it did in Bahrain. Only unreliability threatened to derail the team's weekend, after Max Verstappen was dumped out of qualifying in 15th with a driveshaft failure. But his lowly grid position was no impediment to the team's success, and the Dutchman easily rose to second after a safety car intervention before the halfway mark of the race. From there, he duelled at a distance with poleman and leader Sergio Perez. The two traded fastest times until Verstappen conceded he wasn't gonna catch his teammate and instead settled for a bonus point for the fastest lap. Perez was free to secure an impressively assured victory ahead of Verstappen and, eventually, Fernando Alonso. To unpack the race and its implications for the rest of the year, I'm joined by ESPN General Editor Nate Saunders. Nate, welcome back to the podcast. Hey man, thanks for having me back on. It's been a long time
0: actually uh since I've been on this show. I think I did one last year. Um but yeah, no, I'm 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 glad to be back.
1: Yes, I seemed to right. I think it was in the Netherlands, I believe. And I can't even remember what happened. I can only remember the non-stop trance music at that race it's well i think that's what the podcast was about wasn't it we <laughs> were just we were
0: it turned into a deep dive into the european music scene <laughs> um but yeah One i think you're right ones. yeah oh yeah absolutely and um highlight of the calendar is is uh is and for that very reason <laughs> it's like in your bones yeah, yes. for the next for the next few months afterwards
1: <laughs> absolutely right and look it does feel like we're in non-stop max mayhem mania if you like because Obviously continued winning after that race and has continued winning since, except for this race, but it still doesn't feel like we're fully off the max train. Let's just start with Red Bull Racing. Let's get straight into that because another dominant one-two finish, and we'll take a bit of an overall look before we look into detail at this race. But it feels weird to say it, only two rounds in. Have we seen enough now from Red Bull to know that this is going in one direction is that pessimistic or optimistic do you think
0: no i think that's very fair mate i think that's a very very fair fair view (laughs) and um you know there was always that kind of shred of i guess optimistic doubt coming out of bahrain that hey maybe that's that car just really suited the bahrain circuit and then Mm. i think in jeddah if anything they looked even better than they did in bahrain in terms of just how fast they are how kind of how big that gap is um and i think that you know, as soon as I know Alonso got into turn one ahead, but really, as soon as Perez was back in the lead, you knew he was just going to drag a gap out. But the way Max came through that field, you know, the way he went past some of the cars, you know, during the race, I mean, the commentators on the world feed, you know, I think Crofty and Brundle were both just like, oh my word, like, how has <laughs> how, that happened? And you did just leave that sense of this is going to be a season a bit like Mercedes had, you know, maybe in 2014, where there's a lot of one twos for Red Bull. Um, amazingly, Christian Horner said that's their first back to back one two for red bull since 2011 which is nuts um and i feel like i feel like they're gonna have a lot of them this year you know they've they've waited 10 11 years for two in a row and they're gonna get a bunch of them um but yeah no i i think um you have to be very very optimistic if you're not a red bull fan that is to think anything anything else i think at this point but i mean what, what do you reckon do you think there's any shred of of optimism to come out of of the race if if you're wanting a competitive season.
1: I think Saudi, like you said, it's such a different circuit from Bahrain that it's it's difficult to see positives from this one. I think out of Bahrain, I don't think it was unreasonable to believe that maybe there could have been differences considering it's a particular track and they obviously tested there, so you know, eyes can be looking to other circuits. But I'm sure and I'm hopeful we'll have better races, but it's hard to uh it's hard to see a card that dominant being less dominant at other track. Like it's hard to imagine a track. So different that it could possibly, unless yeah. it's under the water, perhaps that might make a difference.
0: <laughs> even then, I think Red Bull might be even yeah. faster underwater. That's probably the the, <laughs> the secret they're not telling us. Um, yeah, I think you're right. That that was really the kick in the gut. Really was that you, you hoped? Hey, maybe maybe this brings the field in. You know, there was talk going into it, like Ferrari saying, "Hey, maybe we'll be better in Jeddah." Um, you know, they were hoping that maybe the tire issues wouldn't be so bad there. Um, and just across the board, I think that it was it was just. Yeah it was obvious wasn't it from the first practice session red bull have got a like a rocket ship this year and fair play to them like i think you've always kind of you've always got to make that clear haven't you when you're talking about a team dominating they're dominating because they've done f- by far the better job than anyone out there um and yeah it's just from a from from our perspective our job's perspective it just makes it, it makes it a bit harder doesn't it when we've probably got 23 <laughs> 22 podcasts this year or weeks or whatever it is um to Write very similar things, but um, but yeah, they look they look untouchable, and the th- I think for me now the fascinating thing is is how much later in the season this wind wind tunnel penalty comes back to them, um, and if we see that actually have kind of a legitimate impact in in kind of the gap by the end of the season, because I think Christian Horner said at the end of the race, uh, he said right now they they just want to get as many points as they can now because they're very wary of that later in the season. You know, they're very wary that that's coming, so. You know, maybe we, because the only the only year you can really think of that's similar for very very different reasons is Braun GP, right? When they dominated the start of the season, won what was it? It was five of the first six races or whatever it was, looked untouchable, and obviously as as other teams with more money kind of outdeveloped them, that gap. And ironically, that year was Red Bull, wasn't it? Kind of came back into it. I don't think it'll be that extreme this year, but it's it it does show you that, you know, it is a long season now. So that's kind of maybe the only offshoot of. Of hope you can have is that over the course of such a long year maybe someone can come back into it the problem is half the teams chasing are like we've got to change our concept completely <laughs> so <laughs> so that that does diminish the optimism slightly but um but we'll see um <laughs> uh, but but maybe you know if that does happen I think it will increase the, op- the excitement for for next year I feel like this season's already kind of You know, It's already set in stone how it's going to finish, maybe.
1: Yeah, I think that's why I'm optimistic there'll be some better racing later. You know, Aston Martin has such a significant advantage in terms of resource to develop this year because they finished so badly last year. Incredible turnaround for so many reasons. But I do think we might see, not only will Red Bull, I mean, I'm glad I'm going to put this on record, but surely cannot win every race this year. Uh, So I'm sure we'll see some unusual activity like that. But also, I, I... I feel like Aston Martin will get close enough that at the odd race with something unusual happening, they'll be able to snipe the wins and then Mercedes and Ferrari will get onto where they are. But that's another matter entirely. But if we want to pick out some potential other reasons for optimism, if that one wasn't enough, Although, again, I guess pure pace masks everything. Reliability seems like it's emerging as a little bit of a theme for Red Bull. For a couple of teams, in fact, maybe it's just something about second year of the rules. But Red Bull's had quite a few, some reliability problems, also just some, you know, Max Verstappen hinted at some misunderstandings about how to set up that car. I mean, the end of this race, both cars seem to have some problems. <laughs> I mean, nursing is maybe in inverted commas, considering how fast they're going, but they reckon they were nursing them. Is that potentially a weakness, or is the pace just so great that it doesn't even matter if they're going to slow down a little bit?
0: Yeah, n- they were nursing the car by driving at the same speed as everyone else, <laughs> basically. <laughs> was, um, yeah, I think that – I did I did wonder about that, and we, we did see it last year, didn't we, that hint at this same point of the season last year, Red Bull were mm-hmm. having those issues where Max didn't finish two of the first three races – um, So I think it is an interesting one. I think we've got to see more than one failure uh, for that to be uh, a potential. But I think the issue <clears throat> the issue you, you're going to have, aren't you, is that Red Bull don't need to be clearly pushing their car at the very extreme. So I, I wonder how, how much they're going to be holding back in, in races coming just to make sure they're finishing these races. Because like you said, I think it was about the last 16 laps or so, they were genuinely worried both cars could have a failure based on what happened with Max in qualifying. Um, and that's not unusual. is it? We, we hear that quite a lot in races. Teams go, oh, we didn't think we we're going to finish the race. Um,
1: mm.
0: I mean, hopefully, because, you know, if if the fastest team, if the team by a long, long way has the worst reliability record, that actually makes for a really fun season because you're like, if this car finishes the race, it'll win, but it has to finish the race. I remember that, that there, was it 2005? McLaren had a really great car. Really, really great car. It was actually uh, Alonso's first championship year. Problem was, it barely could finish. It could barely yeah, finish yeah. races, and so you had this great thing where Renault had this really, really great, reliable car that was probably second best in a lot of places. But the McLaren just could not finish a lot of uh, a lot of the races that year, and it kind of opened the door for Alonso. Um, I can't remember that being the most thrilling season ever, but I remember it just at least adding kind of an element of of this is actually competitive. But yeah, I think we need to see we need to see more failures before we can say Red Bull has that issue. Because like you look at Ferrari, they clearly have issues, right? Like they've, they're already, they're already taking grid penalties. <laughs> you know, they're already cycling through parts. Red Bull, it seems from what Christian Juana said, it sounds like them, they, they were trying to add parts to the pool, weren't they, of of parts they, they've used for the season. And he said at least that it was the act of changing those parts and, and doing so before this race that actually led to the failure of Max's car rather than an inherent flaw with the piece with the, with the part of the car. So, um, cause it was drive shaft wasn't it, in the end that they said was the, mm-hmm. was what caused it. So we'll see. But, um, but yeah, maybe uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pouring, I'm pouring water on your, on your optimistic, uh, chat of reliability i don't mean to be
1: uh, no it's meant to be a realistic podcast
0: yeah
1: so so heralded optimism elsewhere. Yeah.
0: yeah there's a good yin and yang going on here you're saying surely we're gonna have a great season i'm like no i don't i don't think we will mate i don't really <laughs> which is I'll, I'll change it up i'll change it up from this point i'll change yeah. it
1: up <laughs> you'll never know who's good cop or bad cop that'll be the mission by the right of and that's podcast. and that's that's
0: that's how you get into people's heads right they're like wait the good cop and bad cop just switched around on me
1: (laughs) (laughs) well the reason that there's so much pessimism after this race isn't purely just that of course Sergio Perez won it's the fact that Max Verstappen finished second and quite close of course to the winner only five odd seconds behind despite starting 15th because of that drive shaft failure in qualifying he was very unhappy about that as if he didn't know how good his car was we've seen him win as well from 14th uh, last year's belgium grand prix uh was a very straightforward race in fact he won that by 17 seconds over perez i went back and looked which is incredible uh there was a better race than this one so if you think this one was great go back and watch last year's race i suppose but how, uh, it's it's always difficult to, like, this is the criticism of every dominant season, isn't it? How much is car versus driver? I guess we already know Verstappen's a great driver, but what did we, I mean, we already know what we learned, I guess, from that recovery, that the car is really quick. It's what happened afterwards with the battle with Perez, it's really interesting, I think. What did we learn or did we learn anything about the car and how those drivers are working in that final half race, 25 laps when they were kind of shadow boxing for the lead? Well, I'm not sure how much we learned about the car
0: more. We learned more about the the mindset of both drivers. I think, um, what we learned about the car was, that was, as we said, like the, they were both managing very, very, um, you know, a lot at the end. I think that that's why the radio chatter that we had at the end was, you know, stick to this Delta time to both cars, to both drivers. Um, but I think what we <clears throat> what we learnt more than anything is that, that that whole dynamic between Perez and Red Bull versus Max and Red Bull and what they're willing to do and not do is it hasn't changed from last year. You know, Perez's whole thing, he's out on the lead and he's like, Do I have the fastest lap? Yes. Is Max gonna go for it? No. You know, and then Max is in the car, like, well, I'm gonna go for it anyway on the final lap. <laughs> so I think that if we learn anything from that race that is of is of huge significance beyond the fact that Red Bull's super dominant. It's that that really hasn't changed this year. And I think that the one thing that could save the season from a competitive standpoint is is knowing Perez has it in him to take the fight to Max across the season. And I know it was you know, it was a great race. He did everything Perez did everything he could uh, right. You know, he didn't do anything wrong in the race, but I think if Max is there with him starting on the front row, I think Perez finished second in that race, just based on what we saw. You know, he wasn't he wasn't out outmatching Max on pace. I think Max, I think, clearly has, you know, Maybe at street circuits, Perez is a lot closer to him. But Max seems to just any car he's given, he just is kind of on top of, isn't he? Which is a, a remarkable trait of his. So I think that um, what will be interesting now, going to Melbourne, where Red Bull again another Horner fact that he he threw. I'm, sounds like I, sounds like I'm sponsored by Christian Horner today. I've, I've name dropped him about five times, but I just I just actually finished reading a transcript of of what he spoke about at the weekend, so it's fresh in my mind. But. Uh, Melbourne has not been kind to Red Bull. They've only won there once since 2011. So again, fascinating to see this weekend if if that's somewhere that Perez can maybe you know get get a foothold on Max um, because I think at c- certain circuits Perez almost drives that car better than Max does. Um, and um, I don't think they're going to have any issues for the next few races from anyone else. So, um, but yeah, I mean that that's what I took away from it. What, what what did you think those final laps? Was there anything that stood out in terms of of that
1: fight? I'm inclined to agree that. It's difficult to imagine Perez winning had Verstappen started on the front row. Probably, if for nothing else, that in wheel-to-wheel battle, A, we know uh, Verstappen is better, but also is more intimidating, I think. It's harder to make a move on Verstappen, even if you have the pace. But I was impressed that Perez had equal pace. You know, they both ignored Perez a little bit later than Max, but they both ignored those team orders to slow down and the gap over the course, like if you take the gap from the start of those 25 laps, it was about five and a half seconds. It finished at about five and a half seconds. Um, yes, it was helped a little bit by Verstappen deciding he wasn't going to pursue it in the last seven laps. But then Perez also slowed down as a result. So I think that pace is heartening. It's too early to say, but Perez has spoken, the team has suggested too that he works better with this car, and he has more tools in this car to set it up in the way he likes, whereas at the end of last season, he didn't, and that was part of the reason he was so off the pace, in a relative sense anyway, Verstappen, for, I don't know, pretty much the second half of last year. So I think there are reasons to think that he might be generally closer this year, whether or not it's close enough to actually win enough races to keep it alive is a different story. I do have a lot of street circuits on the counter these days. Well, yeah, it? that's yeah true, that
0: and... We got one more this year with Vegas, so maybe this is the year for, yeah. for Perez to <laughs> come back. Be um, I do, yeah. yeah, I do think I think you're right. I mean, the thing is, is that in we've seen I think we've seen too many times that if if you look at the races that Perez has won at Red Bull, a lot of the times you can you can look at you can say well this happened to Max or Max was out of the equation for this reason. We've not seen a race yet where he's comprehensively beaten Max unless I'm. But you know, there was like Monaco, but then you know there was there was a strategy implication there and Max maybe not having the right mm-hmm. stop. And again, not taking anything away from Perez, because I don't think he did anything inherently wrong in those races. But I think if you if you put them wheel to wheel, like you said, Max is a lot more intimidating. And I just think if they're starting from the same position, Max is probably going to win. But then I think that's kind of why maybe there's this deflated sense people have at the moment of this championship. Everyone's kind of already a bit like, oh, this is going to be a terrible season, is because the, the one difference between this season and maybe 2014 or 2016 when Mercedes had that great car was that you knew in both those seasons that Rosberg at least could take the fight to Lewis. Not every race, maybe, but enough to make the championship. And in 2016, he did do it enough. And he was helped by reliability issues on Hamilton's side of the garage. And his form was good enough and the car was good enough that he was always scoring big points when, when Lewis wasn't. So I think... For me, that's the key now going forward with Perez. If Perez can show that that wasn't a one-off, that you know he's gained confidence, he is like you say driving the car better, setting the car up better than he has been in previous seasons, finding that sweet spot. Because I think there was, he said last year, didn't he, that he felt the car was maybe had moved towards what Max wanted more than him, which totally makes sense. You know that often happens. The car kind of, you know, the upgrades, the developments, the, the setups kind of all go towards the guy who's who's leading the championship. Um, you, you know, you want to make your quickest car even quicker um but I think that's key right now for the championship in terms of just the excitement because if we get to Miami and Max has won the next three races you know or we get to Imola or we get to Europe and it's clear that the only way Perez is going to win is a if we're on a street circuit or b something happens to Paris, uh, to Verstappen I think the The genuine threat that he poses is kind of is diminished, I think.
1: Yeah, and just before we move on from Red Bull, and obviously their strategies were identical, thanks to that safety car that Lance Stroll triggered. So it was a straight fight in that sense. The top five all stopped on lap eighteen, and except for Hamilton, switched to hard tires. The Rosberg analogy is an interesting one. Something I've been thinking about, and in the context of everyone seeing now the reaction from for Verstappen after, the, or the non-reaction, maybe I should say from Yos. I was going to say Verstappen reactions. Reactions kind.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it looked like Physically it shut down.
1: Present, brain, not so much. He yeah, looks like
0: know. it looked like a video cutscene where your player's stuck in the middle of it, you know, and there's like a cutscene, and you've you've put your <laughs> you've put the character you're controlling in the middle of a scene you're not meant to be in, and they haven't they haven't animated him, you know, for for, for that celebration. <laughs>
1: It was a lot like, that's a very good analogy, actually. I enjoy that. We saw that. We have no, you know, there was, to talk about harking back to things last season, there was a little bit of tension there when there is a reason for the two drivers to be up against each other in some way. This year, it seems like, and even Max said this, and again, we're only in round two after the race, that it's going to be a two-car fight for the championship and they are both Red Bull cars. Does that change the dynamic in a way in the sense that there's no reason for Red Bull to... You know, even if you know, even in a soft way, prioritise Verstappen as a title leader given that, well, there's no other threat. Do you think that at all changes the the prospect for the title fight being closer for Perez to then take the Rosberg route where he essentially antagonises his way to the championship?
0: Yeah, you know what? I think that that is a really good observation because I think that that... Rosberg's spoken about it quite a lot, hasn't he? he I think he realised mm. quite... Maybe too late for 2014 and fifteen, but I think he realized that one great strength he had was that he could get under Lewis's skin quite easily. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, Lewis Lewis is very up and down in terms of his mood. And we can come on to talk about Lewis later because it's interesting right now, right, that he's in kind of a similar place. Um, But we saw that, we've seen it before as well with the Verstappen camp, you know, if he's not winning and they feel that Perez has won unjustly or Perez has won just because he wasn't Mm -hmm. in the fight there is this sense of frustration from their side, you know, and there was obviously Brazil last year. I think that, you know, that was very clearly Max putting his foot down saying, this is my team. And I think last year, what, you know, Red Bull really couldn't say anything, but this year I think you're right. They're in a position where they can't say to Perez, sorry, we had to, we had to sacrifice your race to cover off from Alonso because he'll say, well, look, Alonso is not in the same race as us. Alonso's, Alonso's going for like his, his best is going to be third at the moment. Anyway. From what we've seen, again, you know, we're assuming from the first two races, but I think it's pretty safe to say that for the time being, you know, everyone else is fighting for that third step on the podium. So Perez now can turn around to Red Bull and say, you've got to give me the same strategy, you know, whatever he's doing, I want to do the same thing a lap later or a lap before. I remember we always had that fascinating dynamic between Rosberg and Hamilton, didn't we, about the strategies, because it wasn't wasn't a case of one of them's going to do a three-stop and one of them's going to try, try a two, usually they would stick very close to each other in terms of what they did. Didn't always make the best races, but it meant they were always very close together. And it meant it was quite spicy afterwards because, you know, one would say, oh, I should have pitted first or whatever it was. So I think that Perez probably has that up his sleeve. That's probably his, his. He, maybe he needs to go final 2016 F1 season review. You know, we love those, don't we? I don't know what the 2016 <laughs> one is called. Um, <laughs> but... Look at some of the ways that Rosberg. I think what he did away from the circuit that year was 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 great. You know, he he made sure that he was just constantly. I don't, I'm not going to say he was playing mind games because I don't think it was it was mind games as such. But I think he was just very good at making sure that when Lewis was feeling rattled, he rattled him a bit more. And I think that Max has given the impression that he can get he can be rattled in certain situations as well. You know, he looks sometimes, doesn't he, like he's very upset about the way things have gone. And you do wonder with Max, you know. I think when, when it was him versus Lewis, it was Red Bull versus Mercedes. It was us versus them. You know, it was very whatever feeling Max had. If Max was furious, you know, Max, you know, Max and Lewis collide in, in, at Silverstone, for example, Red Bull will say 100. percent That's Lewis's fault. If you start having a collision with your teammate, suddenly the team's like, well, we can You know, it's not as cut and dry as <clears throat> we just support Max now because you know, and Horn has had this before with Weber and Vettel. Suddenly you're like, well, damn, we've got to keep both these guys happy. We've got to make sure we don't upset the lead guy, but we've also got to be fair to the second guy because, you know, he might end up being a championship contender. You know, he might end up being in a position to win us races if Max falls off. So that will be interesting. Um, and I wonder how much Checo's kind of packed up what happened in Brazil and just kind of tucked it away up his sleeve to remember, you know, like, just remember, you know, when the when the chips were down last year, just remember how Max, you know, the the favor Max was not willing to pay you I hope I hope for the sake of the championship Perez remembers that and acts accordingly this season because I think there's going to be a point this year where Perez is ahead Max is behind and maybe quicker and then the question of whether Red Bull say you've got to let him pass is interesting because Perez now is massively within his rights to say no he's my title rival I'm not doing that um, and I think you're right that is what's different this season
1: I think it's going to be very interesting 2016 they did their best Nate. one of the great DVDs is that titles, yes season review DVDs oh, I was course. trying
0: to I, I wasn't sure if it was they did their best but that that is an all time <laughs> all time classic um, I'm going to have to go through and find them all again they're they're tremendous. Whoever wrote those, kudos, because I assume they're in on the joke. <laughs> I hope they're in on the joke.
1: <laughs> you know, can only hope. That's the way that the Red Bull battle at the front unfolded. Perez winning uh, the the win. He felt like he lost last year in Saudi Arabia as well. So I guess a title or a chapter closed uh, on that sense. But it was a very comfortable one-two finish for Red Bull Racing. Way behind them was Aston Martin again. Fernando Alonso was on the same strategy because of the failure of his teammate. Lance Stroll, uh, who was the only one who really had different strategy in the top six. but We'll talk about how that interacted with Ferrari a little bit later on. Aston Martin, I think, is a really interesting case and similar to what we expected from Red Bull going into this round, because there were question marks after Bahrain about how much the car maybe stood the circuit. Fernando Alonso himself talked a lot about those questions and, and not being 100% convinced on where they sat. How convincing was Aston Martin here on a very different circuit? Because Alonso seems... I mean, for a place that has no alcohol, he seemed inebriated on his own success, which is not unusual for him, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, a very, very convincing, and a, a bit like a bit like what we said with Red Bull, right? You know, such different circuits, um, and for them to be the second best team at both, at least in Alonso's hands, um, very impressive. And you're right. I mean, we've not seen Alonso this jolly for years, have we? Like genuinely happy, mm. genuinely kind of actually kind of seems to be enjoying himself. You know, he there were clear. <laughs> like frustrations kind of lingering the last few seasons, especially, you know, when he was at McLaren before that. So I think that if anything, I actually, I look at Alonso and I'm like, the fact that that guy is that happy with his car is all the evidence I need, you know, and, and, and then the proof is on the circuit. The proof is on the track. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he's following it up, but if, if he'd done that and he was still a bit like, well, you know, I'm not sure, you know, if there was doubt there, you'd think Alonso knows Formula 1 well enough to know when he's got a good car or not. So I was really impressed. Um, And I I think what's going to be interesting actually for them is um, obviously Stroll didn't finish the race. But um, as the season goes on, I wonder how much we're going to be talking about one Aston Martin finishing third and then where the other one did. You know, it was massively, massively impressive Mm -hmm. what Stroll did in Bahrain to race. But he clearly at this this point, maybe doesn't have his head around the car
1: in the same way Alonso does. Which I guess he did miss out on testing, you know, if I wanted to. Cosplay as Lawrence Stroll, I'd say less testing. He's broken most of his limb. And look, I mean, Jeddah,
0: if if there was any circuit he was gonna struggle at, it's probably that one, right? So like that's yeah. not me not me criticizing him at all, because I think the fact he's in the car at all is amazing. Um but at this point again we're talk- we're talking about Red Bull needing to maximize results mm-hmm. now you always wonder when Mercedes and Ferrari get their act together, are they going to just jump ahead of Aston Martin? You know, and I th- I just hope Aston don't come to regret some of these. Well, just regret the fact that Stroll missed what he did and came into the season, maybe not hundred percent because there's big points on the table that, and again, it was a car failure on his, on his side. Right. So it wasn't like he, he dropped the mm-hmm. ball, but there's big points they dropped there. So, um, but yeah, you know, f- fair play to them. They've done, an unbelievable job. I mean, I think it's funny, isn't it? In January, if you'd said Red, if you said Aston Martin will be the second best team this season, it would have seemed. It wouldn't have even seemed unlikely. It would have just seemed completely absurd, completely <laughs> impossible, because we never thought someone could jump from the midfield up to the top three. So, very impressed.
1: Yeah, it's almost been a little bit of a paradigm shift uh, in that situation. But it will be interesting to uh, see when during this year Aston Martin's focus does shift. At the moment, they're just pleased to be there, but at some point they'll need to consider where they're going to finish in the championship. And now maybe still coming from seventh, they don't really care because they're in the front running pack and whether it's close or not, just being there means they've got that foundation. But inevitably, you know, they're competitive. If it's going to be close with Mercedes, then those percentage games will make a difference. And how remarkable would it be to see a customer team beat Mercedes? We can't talk about Fernando Alonso without talking about whatever happened afterwards. We say how happy he was. When he was told he was no longer on the podium, he said he didn't care, which in itself is remarkable. He did eventually get back on the podium, but this was... I mean, this was a, an unnecessary delay to proceedings. Is probably the nicest way you can say. It, considering it took four hours to get a final classification.
0: Yeah, that's being very kind to it. I mean, I wasn't on the ground for this race. You know, um, my colleague Lawrence Edmondson was, but I was. I was WhatsApping him during it. You know, obviously, I'm staying up as it's as it's unfolding, and it's just baffling. I mean, we've been in these situations before, haven't we, with the FIA and waiting on a decision? I remember Austria 2019. I think we were sat next to each other in the media center, actually. That that race, and that was when. Verstappen barged Leclerc out of the way on the final lap, Mm. won the race. And we spent, it felt like the best part of seven years. (laughs) I felt like I I aged (laughs) considerably, we're just waiting for a verdict, you know, and it's strange, isn't it? And look, when you look at it on paper, there are obviously explanations and reasonings as to why things take so long. You know, they have to, you know, there's a right of appeal. Then there's, you know, they go and see the stewards again and all this stuff. But the fact that it played out so badly, didn't it? You know, we had Alonso celebrating on the podium. The official FIA messaging system said he's under investigation, and then you know everyone's like, oh he's he's been given a 10-second penalty. he's lost the place, but we didn't have the official document from the FIA saying so for the three hours, you know, and the joke is always well, how long does it take to write up a document, but I think it I think it's fair. you know you if you're if you're handing penalties out, you know we can go into we can go into the, why it took them so long to look in the first place, but yeah, you just i I don't i've I've never understood why Formula One insists on doing the podium and then having stewards things afterwards do the, the it would add to the spectacle if you had somebody finish third or finish first it's like before he can get on the podium he's got to go see those stewards <laughs> you know and i was watching um the cheltenham horse race in the uk recently and they have a stewards room and they have a camera in the stewards room but no sound so it's oh, so the commentators talk over the, stu- the, the, dry, the 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 jockey in there talking to the the officials i don't know what they call them in horse racing and they're talking and they're kind of arguing their case and you can see it, but you can't hear it. It's incredible. And I was like, this is, I was like, this is tremendous. This is, I, I don't know what they were. I can't remember what the the point was about is, you know, had, I, I, you know, I don't follow horse racing. I just had a had a small wager on one random horse on it. But I was like, this is great. You know, this is fantastic. And rather than the race finishing, you know, them giving, you know, getting all of this, you know, all the, all the laurels and everything. And then an hour later being told, actually, you know, that guy didn't actually win the race or finish second, whatever. So yeah, very, very confusing, but um, I mean, we can get into it, can't we? If How, how brave are you feeling? We can get into step-by-step step how that happened.
1: Well, I think that the rundown, I think people are, are sort of getting their heads around, which was that Alonso didn't serve. Well, he did in the end, but it seemed like at a time he did not serve the penalty correctly in pit lane because the rear Jack was touching the car and, there was an allegation that, that the teams have agreed you can't touch the car with anything, but then it turns out there was an agreement that you can with the front jack, and so Aston Martin's argument was that you can with the rear jack, because they're both jacks, and that seems, you know, we're an equal jack employer, which is perfectly good, and it turns out that that was a winning argument.
0: Yeah, exactly, and it <clears throat> it all came down to the wording of the steward's statement, really, in the end, didn't it? Because that was what they said. Mm. They said, so there's the... Um... The name has completely slipped my mind, but the SAC they discussed after Bahrain when Ocon got a similar penalty. What isn't isn't allowed when your car's stationary, um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. The it seems that I think what the FAA put out afterwards, they their, their statement said there were conflicting precedents, didn't they? They said there were there were precedents around the same incident that that, that didn't match up, and so when when Aston Martin presented their evidence to the stewards, so. When, to get a rev- to get a, an appeal, to get a review from the stewards, you have to present them with new or relevant information. Everyone will remember famously when <laughs> Red Bull had Alex Albon drive around Silverstone for, for a day after <laughs> Lewis and Max collided. Oh, they then presented that to the stewards to get a review, and they said, well, there's nothing new or relevant about what Alex has done here today, <laughs> which is always still one of my favorite stories. But what Aston were able to do, once Alonso had served that penalty for the, the rear jack touching the car and getting the 10-second penalty, their sporting director went to the stewards and he said he had the minutes of that meeting that, that took place after Australia. And apparently he had seven um, bits of video from other instances where the rear jack had touched the car of right, you know, of rivals. It didn't specify, you know, who or when, when these were but seven video examples of, of a rear Jack touching the car and, you know, no penalty following. So I think <clears throat> the stewards then said, okay, well that's that, that is relevant. That is new information. They looked at it and they said, yep, yeah, we can understand why you believed that, that was the case that that was allowed, and they overturned the penalty. So, in black and white, it actually makes sense why they overturned the penalty. You know, I think that actually, if you look at it from a very kind of surgical perspective, you know, it it makes sense, right? Everything everything they did made sense. They, that what doesn't make sense is why it took them so long to originally mm-hmm. give the penalty. That's the bit that's so confusing. But what happened afterwards followed the procedure to the letter. But the problem is, I think the procedure just isn't really fit for purpose these days. So I, f- it, I feel like it's it's good that they follow those procedures. They let the teams come back and say, well, actually, look, we don't think this is right. Here's here's why. And they're like, yep, no, that is new information. We hadn't considered that. We will overturn the penalty. And it, I reckon before Australia, it sounds like they're going to meet again. They'll probably clarify what is and isn't allowed in terms of the rear jack and the front jack. So <clears throat> I don't think we'll see it happen again. The problem is, is that that's all people are going to remember is just the wait afterwards. Mm-hmm. They don't really care about the... You know why it took so long, how you got there. All they know is Alonso did have the podium. They didn't have the podium, and they did have the podium by the end of the night. I think it took about four hours, didn't it? It was way after midnight that the people yeah. in Saudi actually got the actually got the result.
1: Yeah, I think for me the more problematic part, and I don't want to be too critical in a sense because there's no way out of this for Formula One, but it seems, if my understanding is correct, that whoever tried to appeal the original non penalty that is whoever brought it up that, that Fernando should be penalized and taken off the podium probably one of the teams who brought it up but it went via the race director who's Niels Whitick, and he, he's been around for only a, a year in Formula One now a year and a little bit started last year after the unpleasantness of 2021 and uh, he sort of bought it essentially he was told oh there's an agreement and he said ah yes there's an agreement they need to look into it the stewards and the stewards did and they said well based on that we're going to penalize Fernando Alonso and it speaks to two different things one is that he's relatively inexperienced in Formula One uh, and and doesn't have... I don't want to say it sounds cruel to say not the absolute grasp of what's going on, but the simple fact is F1's extremely complicated and if you've only been around for one year, it's hard to have a grasp on all of those things. And the second, which ties into that, is that Formula One does a lot of stuff kind of by agreement. Like if this was just written in the rules, it wouldn't have been a problem. But because for virtually forever, F1's operated with, well, you know, we sort of agreed this and that seems like a pretty good way to do it. And then the race director comes in for one year. He's not going to be across all of those agreements or how they all work. It's not possible to be. And it feels like this very much harks back to, I mean, the long tenure of Charlie Whiting, who was able to run the sport like that because everything went through him. He ran everything pretty much. And it just, the, the model is no longer relevant. I think that to me is the bigger problem in all of this. The, the time was annoying, but the bigger problem was that we shouldn't have been here in the first place.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good point about Charlie. And I think that we're, we're seeing that more and more, aren't we? That the further away from Charlie mm-hmm. we get, almost the more glaring it becomes. And I think Abu Dhabi 21 was <clears throat> was a great example of that. You know, that never would have happened under Charlie Whiting. Um, and it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because, you know, this, this new... So after one of the things that came out of Abu Dhabi as well was this new center in Geneva, when they couldn't look at Mm -hmm. decisions happening in real time, they, they they conferred with race control, didn't they? At the time looked at it and said, no, all all good. All fine. And you're right. Like has, has then a team got on the radio to race control. I I can't imagine which team that would have been, um, (laughs) or could have been, um, and then said, look, you need to look at that again. And, and, you know, suddenly then, that's where, if if that is what has happened, you know, a race director needs to say no. We've made the decision, and here's why. And like you said, mm-hmm. if they have that 100 knowledge and faith in those discussions that have taken place before, they dismiss that out of hand. They don't get led down the garden path of, oh well, no, maybe maybe this is, maybe this is something here. Maybe maybe this does need looking at. And again, that's kind of what we got at the end of 21, wasn't it? Was that you had the race director kind of being swayed in, you know, left mm-hmm. and right by. Kind of the whim of whichever team manager was kind of shouting at him at the radio at that time. Now, I'm not saying the same thing happened here exactly, but you do wonder how we got to that point. So I think it's a really good, really good observation, mate.
1: And that is a good point actually. It's the it's still that influence is still happening. Like we're not hearing it over from broadcast, and of course the sporting directors have to talk to the race director. That's how it's always worked. But it does show inexperience can lead to that.
0: Yeah, and, and of course we're not we're not given the luxury of hearing those conversations now. Yes, like we were in 21. Doesn't mean they've stopped happening. You know, but that, I think what 21 gave us was an insight into just how frequently those messages are going back and forth. Yeah. And I know people said, oh, <clears throat> were people playing up because they're on TV? Maybe, but that doesn't mean those messages just suddenly stop happening now they're not on TV. They still happen. And if anything, if you know something's not being broadcast, you might be even even more pushy. You know, That's always how I looked at it. It's like if you're on TV, maybe you think, okay, well, we need to be careful how we word this. If it's not if it's not being broadcast, you say what you want. You know, you can be as forceful, you can be as suggestive as you as you want to be to a race director. So um it's always a fascinating part of it. And I think Whiting was a guy who really wasn't phased by anything like that from the teams, from the drivers. He just didn't care. You know, he he had such authority, such gravitas that you know, I remember I forget which which Mexican Grand Prix it was, but Vettel was irate with him, wasn't he? He had a penalty. Mm. Was just effing and blinding at Charlie Whiting after the race. And Whiting I think, you know, gave him a big slap on the wrist afterwards. I think he had to do some some courses with the FIA afterwards, didn't he, where he he basically, yeah. you know. But again, it showed you that Whiting, he had all that going on. And I wonder if a driver was sat there effing and blinding at the race directors now, would they, you know, would there be a different um, outcome? Would, they, would, would the decision suddenly be, oh, no, actually, sorry, we're, we're going to look at that penalty again just to make sure. There's no, like, yeah. no, we made a decision and we're sticking by it. We made the right one. Um, and Whiting didn't always get it. Right all the time, I think you know we can't just say he was he was perfect all the time, but mm. I think that what he did have was that gravitas and that kind of respect and authority that his what he said goes. there was no no two ways about it. And like you said, he had the grasp of he had the grasp of what was going on around him um so he didn't feel the need to jump back in and second guess things that had happened
1: certainly the power dynamic feels different let's move on now to mercedes though Uh, one of the teams that did experience a different strategy george russell was the same medium to hard but lewis hamilton on a weird weekend started on the hard tire and then switched to the medium was kind of forced into it because of that pit stop it's only one stop around saudi arabia so you've got to stop when you get the chance to and didn't really work out for him because it was a long stint on the medium tire but his race more generally, I mean, the strategy almost reflects that it just seemed a little bit off the whole weekend, did Lewis, and I thought what was really interesting here was that defensiveness might be overplaying it, but after the race, he was sort of talking about he and Russell went in different setup directions, and that's partly because they're struggling with this car and partly because this track is pretty unusual, and he suggested Russell got it right. And I think he used the words, it doesn't usually happen like that. Like, usually he picks the correct setup when they're diverging. I don't know if you saw it as well. I did. I saw it and the it same just, interview. It sort of spoke to, you know, maybe it's just early in the season. We saw a similar thing last year, but this real discomfort in the car from Lewis and it's clearly having an effect on the track when maybe previously we would expect him to kind of drive around problems in the way he's quite good at doing just interested in your read on how he approached this race in which he was I don't want to say he was comprehensively beaten by Russell because he wasn't but just never really looked like a threat
0: yeah no you're right and I was going to bring up that interview so it's it's interesting you saw the same one and had the same the same take I did because it was Mm. it was a weird thing to say wasn't it it was kind of
1: yeah because
0: especially if you you know if you look at the, the the recent past you know going into the last few races of last year, I think Lewis probably had the strongest second half of last season generally, but obviously Russell got the win and Russell was still great all season. And yeah, it, it was weird. I think sometimes, I don't know with Lewis, sometimes you get the feeling that he decides on like a Saturday morning, this isn't, this isn't going to be a good race for me. You know, I'm not enjoying myself. This is going to be bad. And then his whole demeanor shifts from that point to not very happy with it. Um, and I, f- I just got <clears throat> I got the same sense from him this weekend and you know maybe I think you know uh, mentally going from being a title contender you know losing the championship in the way he did in 21 to shifting to last year so you know to, to 21 and then into this season must be pretty difficult compared to Russell who's coming from 3 years in a pretty bad car even with all the issues Mercedes have this is probably still the best F1 car that George Russell's driven bar that race in in, in, bar- in Bahrain that when he stood in for Bottas <laughs> so mentally for him I think it's much easier for him to shoulder what's going on. Whereas for Lewis, you know, he's got such experience of driving great cars. This is such a step back for him. That on top of, you know, the fact that he's probably looking at his career like, you know, I don't have that long left to win that eighth, eighth championship. I don't think I don't think that is it, the, the complete explanation, but I do feel like he is much more prone to just being in that kind of very low, very pessimistic mood. Um, and it's bizarre, isn't it? Because, you know, on the face of it, I, di- I was actually quite impressed with Mercedes in terms of the fact that they didn't look as bad as I thought they would. You know, this this circuit did look like one where potentially they would struggle. You know, a lot of high speed corners. They're good in they're good on the straights now, but the high speeds they've admitted is is an issue. So you wondered, like, is this going to be a place that that really hurts them? And you know, with Ferrari struggling the way they did, Mercedes looked quite clearly better. And like you said, I think Hamilton would have had a much better race had had he not been forced into that stop when he was. That kind of compromises from from that point on. He was just sat behind mm. Russell, not really a- knowing he wasn't really able to push the tires because, you know, he had to get him to the end of the race. So it was bizarre. And I think that met Lewis's kind of just state of mind at the moment. is quite interesting because he, I don't think, I don't think you can say he's not happy right now. Cause I, you know, I think that's all relative, isn't it? He's still, he's still, you know, he's still pleased to be where he is, but he's, there's clearly a, a lingering frustration there. He obviously said, you know, the, the quote that got all the headlines after Bahrain, the team didn't listen to me last year on the direction of this car. Um, which I think was a very interesting thing to say, quite a pointed comment to make to, to a team that you've won so many championships with. So I don't know. I I, I don't know whether it's the sign of things to come or whether it was just a weekend where Lewis thought, you know what, I'm, I'm almost throwing in the towel now. Russell did a great job. Russell, you know, was much further ahead of him, um, in the race. Uh, and I think Russell's doing a great job as well. Then, you know, Lewis probably hasn't had that internal threat for a while. Has he, if you look at Bottas was never really there week to week. Um, what was your read on it? What do you what do you think? Because I, it's fascinating, isn't it? We've seen it before with obviously Alonso's had plenty of times where he, he didn't have a competitive car. But even Vettel, you know, 2014, he had that terrible season when he'd mm. won four straight titles. Complete change of regulations in that case. But he had a new young teammate, Daniel Ricciardo. And again, in that in that season, that was probably the best car Ricciardo had driven in Formula One by well it was mm. by a by a country mile. But for Vettel, it was suddenly, well, this car can't even isn't even might not even be the second quickest at some circuits, you know. So for him, not only was he learning a new car, not only was he getting over it. He had this young, hungry teammate next to him who's getting the absolute maximum out of it. I think that I think that plays into it a huge amount. I mean, what what do you think? Do you think I'm overstating that? Or do you think it's it's maybe a relevant point?
1: No, I think it's I think it's a good point. And definitely the Russell Dynamics one that doesn't feel like it's played out fully yet, just because the car has not been in a position almost to compete with no other team. It was really good in Brazil and it was kind of in a class of its own and the rest of the year it was kind of a bit nowhere. So they're not even really, nothing's up for grabs other than wherever the Mercedes is going to finish in a general sense. But I think what'll be interesting, and you sort of said there, we don't know if this is lewis now or this is just he's had a a weekend in which he's just not engaging or whatever it is but last year started off in a similar way and then switched on when it seemed like he knew what he was aiming at and that sort of started in spain i think so not that late into the season when they brought that upgrade and it seemed like it it helped and suddenly it seemed like mercedes were going to fix the porpoising and then the car was going to be great and he could see the goal and then this year they've come in with a car that doesn't have any of last year's problems and it's just slow and the team doesn't know why because it's still convinced that this was a good concept but have at least conceded that they don't know how to get the, the figures they were getting and they need to change it. And there is no finish line now. And sometimes I think, you know, it's been so long since Hamilton hasn't been able to aim for a title that he he can't respond when there's no obvious target. Like there's no goal. He talks a lot about self-improvement and I'm, I know he's committed to that. But self-improvement, you know, you can do between races. Then you get up when you've got to expend all that adrenaline and really aim for something when you're at your most competitive. And he doesn't really know what he's aiming towards. Like, oh, he might be fourth, might be just behind Russell, like, oh, what, to get to the end of the race. And it just seems to me like he just lacks the aim at the moment. And I don't know if that comes around when they start upgrading the car and you can see that those upgrades are working like they were last year and the concept change is working. Toto Wolff talked a lot this weekend, as you would have seen, that they're making massive steps in the one week since and, uh with their new concept idea, and it's going to be great in six or seven races. I think we'll find out when he knows what the aim is, because if the aim is going to move to two or three years down the road to win races... I think we will see a real psychological change in Hamilton in a negative way, in the sense that I think you'll struggle to re-engage. But if we can talk about later this year winning races and then, you know, hopefully next year, I think we'll see him bounce back and have another strong end of the year, but we'll have to wait and see.
0: You're right as well because, and last year's a great example of that, you know, if you look at last season, if you, if you kind of pick out some of those races, I mean, Silverstone, Hamilton could have won there, mm. Zandvoort, you know, if 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 things had maybe been timed differently with a safety car, he could have won there. And obviously, Brazil, like you said, that was a race where it was Mercedes's race, and they did win it. So I think you're right. As soon as he had that, as soon as he knew last year, I mean, I think Imola last year was the real low point, wasn't it? When he was just, yeah. I mean, he was just driving was like around in 14th, yeah, and he was just yeah. like, you know, what's going on here? And and making things worse was Russell was kind of up in the points, doing pretty well. Uh-huh. So I think you're right. I think <clears throat> that's a really good. It's a really good way of putting it. I think Lewis needs that. He needs to know what the end of the tunnel is um and kind of what's coming for him because and and I guess when you're when you're as old as he is and when you're at that point in your career you don't you can't just throw you can't be have a carefree attitude about it you know i think lando norris is kind of in a in a position with mclaren where everyone's like what's he doing why is he there but i remember what i was like when i was in my early 20s you're like no i've got i've got the rest of my life you know <laughs> yeah, i'm going to be young forever you know you feel like you're young forever you know you you, you yeah. can wait you know you almost feel like oh, that's fine don't, don't worry about it but when you're when you're at the other end of your career you think well look you know I don't know if I've got enough time to wait for a championship, um, you know. And I mean, Fernando Alonso just seemed to be of the opinion I'll just keep changing teams till I find one that <laughs> that works. But you know, Lewis, I think that is starting to play on his mind as well. So you, it'll be it'll be interesting as well, won't it? Because at what point this year do you think we'll know whether Mercedes have got their head around it? Because obviously, Imola this year is what they want to target their their new upgrade for. But then you know, it takes a bit of time to kind of. To get your head around a new car, to understand it, and then you've got to, you've got to maximize it. You've also got to hope that your new your upgrades have beaten the upgrades of the other teams and moved you ahead, relatively speaking. So it's going to be interesting where that point is, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think even Imola is not even. I, I mean, I'm not sure because they're kind of talking vaguely. And to be fair, they've only just changed this concept idea now, but they're talking even later for the the next thing, like the change of car. There's going to be an upgrade in Imola, but I don't know how good it's going to be. I guess they don't know either because the car was. Somewhat more competitive than they expected this weekend too. So And it's not
0: gonna be a radical overhaul, is it? Because you can't just suddenly No you can't just suddenly you know turn up with a car that is fundamentally different to yours in terms of the side pods. So I know that's what mm. they it sounds like they're gonna to move towards eventually, but it's gonna be interesting what they do bring because it's gonna kind of maybe be Halfway between this concept and what they want next year, maybe.
1: It will be interesting to see how they tackle that. Before we wrap this up, we've got to talk about Ferrari, though, because they were a team that did try some different things. They needed to use strategy to get past Lance Stroll. That's where he was uh, before he retired on lap 18. They did. They tricked Aston Martin into undercutting, which wasn't effective here. They ran a little bit longer, uh, jumped him, and then, of course, he retired. It was all academic at the end of the day, but couldn't really move any more forward. I know there was a little bit of frustration on Leclerc's radio between him and his engineer about not being told to push when Hamilton was pitting behind the safety car which seems relatively on brand for Ferrari but I guess credit where it's due that you get the earlier strategy call right. the problem here is just that in a race in which they thought they were going to see that they were actually quicker and not quicker than Red Bull of course I'm not sure they weren't that delusional but quick enough that they might be able to aim towards Red Bull this year and make a fight of this championship it turned out to be slower than ever fourth best that's lower than they've been since well since that dreadful 2020 year when they were absolutely nowhere it seems like this was uh, they caught them by genuine surprise is that the sense you got from them
0: yeah it is and carlos science was quite interesting after the race you know his quotes were very you know very open and revealing you know he said we're struggling (laughs) you know we're eating the tires alive even when we're not following a car So he's like, you can imagine how bad it is when we are following another car, just how bad things are. So I think that's a big surprise because I think we knew coming out of testing, everyone said, you know, the Ferrari is probably the worst team on on its tires. But I think that, you know, when you're hearing stuff like that, you know, you're like, that's that's a big concern going to, you know, going just beyond this race because obviously you can fix any problem in Formula One. But if you're struggling with that at the start of the season, on top of the fact that, as we mentioned, they've got reliability issues just everywhere you look, it doesn't really give... A really optimistic uh outlook. I think you know what, I would be interested to know how this how the weekend would have looked, honestly, if if Charles didn't have that penalty though. Cause I feel like as soon as as soon as they knew they had the ten grid penalty, I think that Ferrari kind of shifted a lot of what they did on LeClerc's car towards the race. They knew he was starting lower down. He was the only driver, bar one, I think, to start on the soft tire uh at the beginning of the race. Um <clears throat> And I do think, you know, it's easy to forget that in, in Bahrain, they were a clear second, or at least Leclerc was a clear second before his reliability issue. So I, I'm i almost, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that they didn't make a huge jump back just in the space of one weekend. I, th- I think it looks pretty bad, but I think there were other factors there that you can look at and you can say, okay, maybe, you know, if this hadn't happened, if that hadn't happened, the weekend would have looked a bit better. And I don't know about you, but it just doesn't seem like Signs is getting that much out of the car. Charles seems to be much more comfortable with it um signs is just really lacking at, at the moment and i think that it on a weekend where leclerc is you know drops 10 places down science really has to step up in that situation for the team you know Charles, even even with what i said i think you know they, they did switch to focusing to a race setup he still qualified what was it third in the end or second in the end on the on, on, on in terms of qualifying no it was second wasn't it so i think there's inherently there's pace there they have some issues um, you know, the less said about their radio comes the better because it's just at this point, it's just flat out depressing hearing Charles have to talk to, to, to Xavi and, and the boys on the pit wall. Cause it just, it just constantly, it just constantly sounds like they haven't learned a single thing, doesn't it? In terms of their communications, their processes. I mean, and that was a relatively minor thing, wasn't it? It was, <clears throat> it was, we needed to push at the safety car line because Lewis has just, has just stopped. I think, I think that's basically make sure you're right on your Delta time so that, so that we get him and we don't lose a place. And like Charles said, it's like you've got to tell me that before that moment. You can't tell me after <laughs> I've passed the line. And that's that's unrelated to track performance, but it just kind of sums up where Ferrari's at at the moment. I think they're just they're just doing a lot of things below par, and I think that that's just showing up. And and I really do rate Charles Leclerc. I'm still not convinced how good he is because I think you know he can still make mistakes sometimes. But clearly he's the better of the two drivers. So on a weekend where he is is down the grid for a penalty, I think it looks a lot worse because science doesn't get the most out of the car at the moment. Um, and yeah, they're just—I mean—at the end, that was just—it was kind of sad, wasn't it? It was like they were running in formation. You know, you know when a team wins the Le Mans 24 Hours and they run in formation at the end, it was like they were doing that. But they were—they were what sixth and seventh or fifth and sixth or whatever it was, you know, running in formation to celebrate a glorious fifth position. Um, but that's what it looked like, you know. And and it's crazy because they've in a race like that they were in the position that we were seeing Alpine and McLaren in last season just kind of mm. running their own race you know just yeah we're kind of we're better than the teams in the midfield but we're not quite as good as the top three cool <laughs> you know then, and yeah. that's where McLaren and Alpine traditionally kind of were for most yeah. of the year Yeah, um, I don't think Ferrari are there um, for good yet like I said I think we need to see a few more races but yeah I think the signs comments were the most um, the most concerning from a performance point of view but um, I think if you'd flip the penalties around, I think I think Charles could have done a bit of a better job. I mean, I maybe I'm being harsh on signs there, but I do feel like that did paint the race in a bit more of a negative light for them.
1: Yeah, I, and I do wonder, you know, Leclerc is so good over one lap. If there are any question marks over him as a complete package, it's like, it's, it's race performances, right? And whether he can fully manage a race. And so I do wonder as well, And sounds like you were going back towards Goodcock, which is interesting. But this idea that Ferrari says, well, they're quick in qualifying, which means there must be a way to make the race car quicker. We just need to get it there. But it's Leclerc who's really quick in qualifying. And how much of that is just the difference he's making in the way that, okay, Alonso isn't an all-time great qualifier, but in the difference he can make to a car, or even if a Verstappen can make to a car, or traditionally Lewis Hamilton, maybe not so much at the moment. How much of that, optimism is actually just you've got a really great qualifier in the car and you're not going to make that translate into the race because it's it's not there
0: yeah i think you're right i think you're right and um that's the sort of thing that you know we'll see very quickly won't we over the next few races if that is Mm -hmm. the case if we do keep seeing (laughs) leclerc qualify well and then ferrari just drop back to this kind of position i think it'll be quite obvious what the conclusion
1: is. Yeah, we will know that sooner rather than later. And just to wrap this one up as well, a couple of drivers I want to shout out to, and they are Oscar Piastri uh, as one who completed pretty much the entire race on a single set of tyres, the hard tyre. It does show how little degradation there is here. And not only him, but Nick DeVries and Logan Sargent, they're all rookies. I think Piastri was the standout among them this round, mistakes from the other two guys over the course of the race. Uh, But they all managed pretty well on unusual strategies, I think it's fair to say. But to highlight Piastri in particular, after a non-start of his racing career last week, and to be thrown into this weird situation, McLaren, I think we can at least say with DeVries and Sargent, they kind of knew what they were getting into with the cars they were jumping into. McLaren feels like a little bit... Of a basket case at the moment, their long run pace or their race pace rather had them equal slowest as far as I could see in this race. I don't know why they, I don't know why they keep saying they can score points when the top five teams are locking out those positions. Like it's not, it doesn't. To me, that doesn't add up. Maybe they're saying something that I'm not. I'm sure they're saying a lot more than I am. But it was a strong performance for for a guy who is not under pressure in the traditional sense, but. Under pressure in the sense that this debut is probably not the way he expected to be arriving in Formula One.
0: No, I think you're absolutely right. I was really impressed, yeah, like to make it to Q one like he did, and yeah, and, and and as well with all this with all the scenario around how Piastri came into Formula One, mm-hmm. I think it's just added the intrigue around him to to you know to fans to see what he can do. And McLaren, it's just such a bizarre situation, isn't it? That they've taken that we you know we're looking with the the big point of the season is. Aston have taken a big step forward and Mercedes and Ferrari have taken a step back relative you know to especially relative to Aston but relative to Red Bull but McLaren have just taken a step back relative to everyone you know that when you look at what's happened to them over the over the off season, away from the circuit, they obviously lost Andreas Seidel, so you know that's quite concerning from a from kind of a team morale point of view, especially when you've got two young drivers, Lando, who massively respects Andreas Seidel. But that would have all been fine if they turned up and like you know what, we've actually got a really good race car this year. You know where you know um, Alpine kind of went under the radar, I think, in that race, but really really solid race in the top ten. You know it looks like they've got at least a fundamentally pretty decent package there at their disposal. McLaren, by contrast, have a bunch of things they've got to get through. And to go back to Oscar, that's the last thing you want as a rookie. What you want as a rookie is a nice easy car to drive, one way you're you're like, right, there's not a huge amount here that I've got to I've got to get my head around. It's not always the way. But like you said, with <clears throat> DeVries and Sargent, I think that they're like, okay, this is going to be a rough year and you can get your head around it. And you do wonder whether this has been a bit of a a bit of a shock to the system for Piastri because he probably looked at McLaren at the end of last season and thought, and looked at what Lando was doing with the car. Maybe not not uh, Daniel Ricciardo, but he thought, "I can do I can do pretty well next year if that's the baseline." But of course, <laughs> mm-hmm. the baseline has just dropped through the floor this season. So, I think I think he all he can do really in that situation is kind of the opposite of what Ricciardo was doing in the sense that you're going to be judged relative to what you do to Lando this season, and if you're able to get the most out of a bad car, then. You're doing, you're doing great. You know, it doesn't matter where McLaren's finishing. I think people know that's not on, that's not on Oscar's shoulders. You know, if the car's not, the car's not like you say, not capable of locking out those those top five positions on the grid. Um, but yeah, very weird situation to go into. Uh, and interesting, wasn't it to see? We don't usually see Norris make unforced errors like he did yes. at the weekend. And we were talking about Lewis's mindset. I think Norris and his state of mind, where he's at. I think that's going to be very fascinating to follow over the next kind of, you know, handful of races. Because, you know, what do you do in his situation? You've got this yacht, especially with Piastri coming in, if Piastri starts to perform well. I think Norris did a great job of outperforming Danny Ricciardo, but suddenly the dynamic shifts. If, if Oscar starts being the car that performs there, suddenly you look, at, you look at Norris and you say, all right, well, what happens now?
1: Yeah, it is it is a really interesting dynamic. I thought his comments after the race, Norris, is actually were interesting when asked about letting Piastri through and said, could have kept him behind and passed Sergeant if he wanted to, which is a weird... I don't know. Like sometimes I know sometimes he's just being <laughs> ironic for the sake of it, but I just thought that was a very unusual thing to say. And I, yeah, I think how he reacts to these races, because it's not just people will build it up, oh, he's unhappy about Piastri's arrival or whatever, but I think it's probably more than that. I think it's the entire situation that surely even he must be growing a little bit frustrated with if, if there's really no light at the end of the tunnel. A lot's riding on that upgrade, isn't it? If that upgrade in Baku... Doesn't deliver, then I think watching what happens to McLaren is going to be very interesting for for Norris in particular.
0: Definitely for Norris because I think obviously he signed that contract extension, didn't he? Um, so I know you said we have to wrap up, but I think Norris is a good a good <laughs> interesting point to finish on because I think Norris, <clears throat> I still think Norris is is one of the hottest commodities in terms of a driver market. You know, if you're a Red Bull or you're a Ferrari and you're not happy with your second driver. You look and you say, "Well, we could. We if we bring Norris in here. Imagine putting Norris with Verstappen or Norris with Charles Leclerc. You know, you've mm. got you've got a super team there suddenly out of nowhere." I know Red Bull have been sniffing around Norris for a long, long time. <clears throat> Whether Max would want him there, that's an interesting question as well. But if you're if you're Lando and you're his agent and you're his dad, who I know takes you know a, a quite a heavy you know hands on approach to his negotiations, you've got to be looking at the fine print of those deals you've signed and being like, "What's our what's our exit if we can?" You know, if, if your contract's anything like Danny Ricciardo's, Zach Brown's probably given you an out somewhere <laughs> that you can use, you know. <laughs> um, So, and again, that's not, you know, it's not just Zach that does that. Lots of teams do that. But like, if you look at traditionally McLaren contracts seem to have had that in them. So, interesting one. And I think you're right. If this upgrade, the one coming up, doesn't work. Lando's obviously been sold the dream of once McLaren get the wind tunnel up and running, once we have all the facilities we need, we'll be a championship contender where he can look directly down the pit lane now and say well Aston Martin don't even haven't even fully finished their facility Mm. you know they're still using the Mercedes wind tunnel and they've moved up to second position right now you know obviously they have one coming online themselves soon so at what point do you start to, to doubt the dream you've been sold you know if suddenly an upgrade this year a key year in his career probably in terms of where it goes from here I think that'd be huge for him I think that could be one of the kind of low-key storylines of the year from this point if i was to make a prediction of the driver we're going to be talking about in the driver market i think it'll be him even though he's got such a long contract it just seems something just doesn't seem right like you said his his attitude has just seemed a bit off
1: it's going to be very interesting as a storyline and goodness knows we're going to need interesting storylines this year <laughs> unexpectedly interesting saudi arabian grand prix but i guess a race so early in the season is bound to do that nate it's great to talk about it with you
0: thanks man good to chat
1: Sergio Perez's victory was a much needed sign of hope for a season that just two rounds in looks like it's heading in only one direction. The dynamics between Aston Martin, Mercedes and Ferrari will be interesting, but really Formula 1 needs Perez to be up to the task of taking the fight to Verstappen. Let's hope he can keep it up. Thanks very much to Nate Saunders for joining me. You can subscribe to the Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. And before we wrap this one up, another quick shout out to our sister podcast, Pit Pass F1. Hosted by esteemed journalists Chris Medland and Julianne Sarasoli, Pit Pass F1 brings you bite-sized podcast updates at every Grand Prix weekend direct from the paddock. Search for Pit Pass F1 in your favourite podcast app or go to evergreenpodcast.com. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the Show Artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. The Australian Grand Prix is coming up in just a couple of weeks. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll catch you then. Hi listeners, we wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay.